welcome back to Holy Habits, a podcast from St. John's Lafayette Square, now journeying through Lent. In these conversations, we explore the disciplines we need to live our faith here and now. This is an exploration into the shape of a life well-lived, that is, a life oriented to receiving the gift of belonging in God's life. Smith, an Episcopal priest, writer, spiritual director, and retreat leader. The holy habit we're exploring is the sacrament of reconciliation or confession, something that Episcopalians are known for prescribing with the phrase, all may, some should, and none must. As a way of getting started, I wonder if you would share an image of God that resonates most with you right now. Well, it's what I saw in the mirror because I have a large um, tattoo on my forearm of a medieval carving of the Lamb of God Mm -hmm. carrying the cross as a symbol of the resurrection. And this has always resonated me, um, always reminding me the lamb of god that takes away the sins of the world and the the kind of universal reach of god's tenderness mercy and compassion that knows no limits the lamb of god the tenderness that knows no limits that's beautiful thanks for sharing that so as an introduction to this practice would you just share uh, maybe in a sentence what this means for you this is the opportunity for me to be current, ex- experientially, mm-hmm. with God's forgiveness. And it's an assistance at letting go any sense of accumulated baggage of regrets and blame so that you can uh, ma- make a fresh beginning mm-hmm. with, a, with a lightness of heart being alleviated of a sense that we're kind of building up or accumulating something we're dragging behind us in terms of our own faults and stupidities and mm-hmm. omissions. Confession is a kind of letting go of yeah. the regrets and blame that we carry. Yeah. Yeah. And being ready to begin a new day with God's mercy, new every Morning is the love, you know, it's like it's making a fresh beginning. Mm-hmm. A fresh beginning. Um, so when did you first begin this practice? When I was a teenager, I was at a boarding school in England, and we had permission to find a local parish church as well as worshipping in the cathedral. And I gravitated towards a church where confession was practiced regularly. And I knew that the parish priest was a very seasoned and experienced counselor using confession to basically help build up people's spiritual lives and their own intimacy with God. So I made my first confession uh, within the usual adolescent turmoil. I must have been, you know, 16. Mm -hmm. Um, And It was a very simple experience and nothing elaborate. I simply turned up by appointment in church 
having examined my conscience in ways that they, they had some guides to do that. But the pithy advice that he gave uh, and the simplicity of the whole experience was very remarkable. And so when I became an undergraduate at Oxford, I gravitated towards another church um, where this was a very regular part of the practice of people who took their Christian lives seriously and built it into their rule of life uh, to make confession regularly, maybe four times a year, as a way of renewing one's commitment to God and also an opportunity to receive tailor-made, very personalized spiritual counsel that spoke to your condition and one's own particular, the particular outlines of one's own faults and defects. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that sort of separates this from, you know, uh, corporate confession that we say every time, you know, we gather for worship together is that this individual experience is something where you can kind of come close to all of those um, regrets or stupidities or whatever it is, these sins that we carry um, in a very personal way, a way that feels sort of real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so since that first experience uh, as an adolescent and going forward and certainly becoming a priest um, who is able to participate in that with others. Uh, how has your experience developed since that time? You know, the confessions played a big part in my own life um, because not only the, of the kind of um, seminary I went to, the kind of parishes I served in, but I also joined a religious order, the Society of St. John the Evangelist in England, whose priests were noted as confessors throughout the church for a very, very wide variety of people. Mm -hmm. So that in our churches, confessions were available in some circumstances several times a day for anyone to drop in, as well as having responsibility for doing spiritual direction with people for whom confession would be very much part of that discipline. And so I became a confessor to people of all walks of life uh, fairly early on in my priesthood, in my mid-twenties and beyond, even extending to being the confessor of a, an order of enclosed Benedictine nuns. So a, a wide gamut from adolescence to you know, experienced women of serious contemplative prayer. And so I had a very rich personal experience. And also being called to do spiritual direction meant that personal confidential spiritual counsel was very much part of my trade, as it was. That's what I did day in, day out. And for decades following, when I was in that order, um, being a confessor and doing spiritual direction meant that one was engaged in a, and what would be called a historic practice of the cure of souls. That is <laughs> the very highly personalized care of people as they sought to develop us in, in their intimacy with God. 
And the confession was that part of spiritual guidance where people were able to be secure enough because of the strict confidentiality surrounding mm. confession to really look into the shadow side of their own life, mm -hmm. knowing that it was absolutely safe from being divulged or even referred to in any way outside the context of confession. Here we might, worth underscoring here, that there are many ways it's that um, in our tradition, that spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual guidance given in the context of confession is not entirely dissimilar from psychotherapy, <laughs> but it is different because it is not, it's, uh, it shares the, it shares with psychotherapy the fact that the mere act of naming one's sins and spelling them out and giving them over is the main thing. The counsel that a therapist gives or a confessor gives is almost secondary to the value of someone owning their own experience and putting it out there rather than having it congested and you know with our cards held to our chest. But again, it's worth underscoring that the traditions of absolute confidentiality surrounding confession are deeply important. Mm -hmm. And this is differentiated from any kind of casual conversation of spiritual guidance or pastoral care, which has a certain measure of confidentiality, but not, not as absolute and as strict as that which mm -hmm. surrounds the practice of confession. As you're describing this, it sounds like these uh, very uh, firm boundaries that create this safe space um, enable uh, something real to emerge, the very painful um, things that we experience, the ways that we uh, don't want to look in the mirror, um, and yeah. certainly lots of spaces that aren't safe to do that. Yes. Um, and, and often, you know, our struggles with shame, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. embarrassment, uh, our um, fear of being seen and known, mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's quite crippling in some ways. And part of the um, realities of confession is that they're, they're not melodramatic things. A few people are coming with serious crimes, although I have known people use confession to negotiate their way out of serious wrongdoing. But often confession is, is about coming to terms with the childishness and immaturity of oneself. So that, um, in some sense, it's more shaming to realize how trivial and paltry our sin it, sinning is mm. rather than coming up with anything grand. I was very impressed um, with the opening of Andre Malraux's um, mem memoirs, where he talks about uh, talking to his parish priest who'd been a chaplain in the trenches with him during in the First World War. And he asked the curé, what have you learned from hearing confessions? 
And the curé smiled and said that there's no such thing as a grown-up person. Huh. And this actually has become quite a, a well-known saying, as it were, because mm-hmm. there's something, there is a pathos, a, a real truth about that. And so in some sense, the tenderness of the experience of the sacrament of reconciliation is that we're in some sense given permission to reckon with the the kind of immaturity of ourselves. Um, It's it's a really let the children come to me and forbid them not. No, come Mm -hmm. as you are Mm -hmm. to this place of forgiveness and assurance of mercy. Uh, and it's not a sort. It's not a, a kind of adult melodrama. Ah, ah. Isn't it guilt and ourselves? It's it's often more about leaning gently into our reluctance to face the place that shame has in our lives, and by some sense, just spelling out in the simplest possible terms what we're ashamed of. That taboo is broken in a context where we can be uh, spoken to in a very, the gospel can be spoken to us in a very direct way, mm-hmm. applying to us just as we are. I've never heard um, that passage, uh, let the children come to me, yeah. um, in in terms of, you know, I've, I've thought of actual children, um, certainly, but in terms of let um, that uh, childishness inside yourself, that, that child that uh, may fear being seen and known for the risk of um, being seen and known uh, for who you are and, and there being shame around that. someone who might be feeling particularly drawn in the season of Lent to open up to this childishness, to embrace themselves and the truth about their lives through practicing confession, how would you recommend they begin and what sort of structures would they need? I think if someone is coming as an adult and feels possibly drawn to this sacrament, There are two possibilities. One possibility is that person is drawn because of a kind of crisis of conscience. Something really serious is um, amiss and needs to be dealt with urgently. Something really critical has happened. In that case, it's advisable to directly contact a trusted parish priest. A trusted priest, uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily your own parish priest. Someone who is trusted, trusted and known Uh, And then simply to say, I'd like to arrange an appointment for you to talk about um, my first experience of the sacrament of reconciliation. If instead that it's not under the impulse of a kind of crisis or anything seriously happening just now, but just a sense of, oh, I really am drawn to the idea of really hearing God's forgiveness embrace my history, my story mm-hmm. of who I am, then uh, I, it's helpful to read a book that I specifically wrote for this situation called Reconciliation, a, gu- a, a, 
a guide to confession in the Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What this book was written to do, and it's been in print ever since here in England and sold continuously, is it puts in your hand a manual that will show you the history and the meaning of the rite itself, describe exactly what to expect, but it will also provide guidance for examining your own conscience, especially if you feel drawn seriously to making a first confession, an actual confession of all those things from your life that weigh on your conscience to this day. Of course, no one literally remembers all their sins. That would be a fantasy. But it gives an opportunity for you to look back over your life decade by decade and remember ways that you you were unfaithful and um, pushed back against God's grace in, in very particular ways. And it guides you into actually noting these down in such a way that if you make an appointment with a priest saying, I'm going, to, I'd like to make my first confession. When you make that appointment, you bring with you actual notes. That means you won't be paralyzed with trying to remember everything um, or struggle to recall, but rather it will be a simple matter of using your own confidential handwritten notes to in some sense, tell this story sequentially um, during my adolescent years, during my years as a student, during my early married years in, in career, more recently, <laughs> or since my divorce, you know, it's that kind of thing. And then having, the, so a first confession can be a real sense of a radical fresh beginning and it's very good a very good practice to do for people for example who are embarking on a marriage or are it is um starting over or making over their lives in some way or um you know negotiating the prospect of a very of a, of a risky surgery where they've been warned that there are genuine risks of survival uh, in this and that people was oh then this is a time for me to really be current with god's forgiveness so this book uh, a guide to hearing a guide to making confession in the episcopal church acts as a, a highly practical manual uh, with different ways of examining one's conscience and preparing for the experience of course, once you've made a confession which has had had the scope of your life up till now, the decades coming up till recently, these never be are referred to again. Any future confession will only relate to what is of recent occurrence, um, renewing that sense of fresh beginning and a new start. Yes. I, I really appreciate um, you talking about being current with God's yeah. forgiveness and really embracing God's forgiveness. Like this mm -hmm. is um, an act that allows you to do that. And uh, especially as you mentioned, you know, beginning a marriage, yeah. um, beginning something where you're promising to 
delight in someone else for the rest of your life, you know, um, that experience of being seen and known very, uh, for better or worse, right. Um, by another person, um, there, there's a sense in which, um, you have to release that shame of being seen and known and, uh, thinking about confessing and uh, really embracing God's forgiveness that you could be uh, an object of delight for God and for another person. Yes. I'm glad you struck that note of delight because I dedicated my book to that remarkable priest um, who um, was my confessor in my Oxford days. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, his deep experience of this ministry, he, but his genius was making this experience a real hearing of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So he didn't speak about, he spoke about God. See, so the sentences began with God. And speaking quite simply about the way God is working through with you just as you are, and is present in your life. And of course, that's the hallmark of a person with a true vocation to do this ministry, mm. is that they speak about how God is active in your life. And I have so many memories of the brief counsel that he gave during confession, which count to me as some of the most powerful expressions of the gospel that I've heard for myself, for example, mm -hmm. he, um, and, and there's almost humor about it. He, I made my confession before my ordination and he asked me rather casually, how long have you been waiting to be ordained? And I said, uh, so actually since I was five, I've wanted to be pleased. He said, that's nothing. God has been waiting from the foundation of the world for you to share in the priesthood of his eternal son. And oh. your joy and the joy of your friends and family are nothing compared with the joy of God. As God looks forward and, and, and it begins to rejoice in all the lives that he will touch through you in the years ahead through your priesthood. I mean, just four or five oh. sentences. You can imagine why I've never forgotten them. <laughs> the occasion was about the joy of God. And of course, that's the hallmark of the gospel, isn't it? There's more joy in heaven over one sin that repents. And a, a great New Testament scholar says, uh, said repentance is joy hmm. Heinrich Schlier I've never forgotten that because it so chimed in with this experience that a confession is not a doleful experience of nitpicking through one's faults it's an expression uh, it's an opportunity to be to find joy in the, the ever renewed compassion of God and to leave that place with a spring in one step knowing that God loves one as one is and God is working in your lives. The other thing was, in confession, you have an opportunity to hear that God works precisely through some of the things that trip you up. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very much a man of words and was from my childhood an extremely articulate person. And of course, that's what led me astray constantly. 
you know, overwhelming and dazzling other people, showing off, mm -hmm. manipulating people, winding them around my finger because I could talk the hind legs off a donkey, as my grandmother used to say. <laughs> but the advice I received in confession was, you do realize, he says, God knows that there's a price to be paid for the gifts he gives you. And the price that God has to suffer is that you will sometimes misuse the gifts. However, huh. God, God is determined to use these gifts that trip you up so often to bring so many blessings to other people. So for your penance, give God thanks for the gift of eloquence, which God is going to use in your ministry to bring joy and truth to hundreds and not thousands of people in days to come. Well, you see, this is a, this is a very authentic, very real form of guidance because there's no denial that you do misuse your gifts. But the emphasis in the, in the context in very few words was simply God is determined to use these gifts to the good. As you see the shadow side of them, now turn to the, the light of this and the promise and the hope of this. Because, of course, um, it's joy that makes us grow up and feel creative. Um, so in this context, instead of, instead of low self-esteem and self, you know, berating oneself. You just leave, leave all that behind and then move on with a sense of joy. Joy is what makes one grow up. Yeah. Not shame. Right, uh, exactly. Or embarrassment or just picking apart every... And self-referential raking over one's own stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. I almost used a word which begins with SH <laughs> in the normal context, but that's what people do. They sort of rake around in stuff instead of just handing it over to God, letting go. Oh, interesting. It's a, it's a difference between um, raking it over yeah. and just letting go. Yeah. 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 I really appreciate that. Um, description like how joyful you're talking about the experience of becoming aware of your own gifts and the gifts of others and how um sort of how we use and misuse them I think that's like a really helpful framework to think about um about uh, yeah I guess what what sin would be is is would you describe sin as a misuse of a gift potentially? Well, uh, we don't have to confine ourselves to one definition. So we uh -huh. think of sin with many facets to it. The, the central thing about sin is that it's a pushback against God's desire and grace in our lives. Mm -hmm. It's a form of saying no, uh, of pushing back against this influence towards tenderness, compassion, mercy. Uh, creativity, imagination, and love. Uh, and so our, our acts of uh, meanness and vengefulness, our projection onto others of our own faults, all, the, all mm -hmm. these negativities, um, the way we drink in the poison of 
uh, gossip and, and of reveling in other people's um, misfortunes and mistakes and errors, things that are continually inflamed in our culture by the media and mm -hmm. the gossip machine of everyday life. So sin is always a kind of um, a refusal or a pushing back against the, the influence of God's tenderness, mercy, and grace. And the opposite of sin is a letting in and a letting go and a letting be and a, mm. and a receptivity, isn't it? Um, most sin is a rejection of receptivity and vulnerability. Uh -huh. We sin to dominate or to correct or to punish ourselves and others or to protect ourselves by through kind of armor and resistance against against being open and vulnerable to others so um sin is always um a kind of refusal of our own vulnerability and therefore a kind of hardening against tenderness towards ourselves and others um so in some sense we learn what sin is over time through a practice of confession both on our own and sometimes in this sacramental context because we realize that um what absolution is is not a kind of formula that's pronounced over our heads is it's a kind of opening of the sluice gates of God's love towards us. It's a kind of letting back in God's tenderness. It's an ad admission that we need it and we desire to be held by God's compassion, tenderness, love, and mercy. And if we're given a way of actually acting that out, such as the sacrament of reconciliation does, its power is not that some priest is authorized to make our guilt go away through some magic formula. It's mm -hmm. This is a very simple conversation that is protected by strict confidentiality, where we admit our need of mercy. Mm -hmm. um, and we let let it into ourselves again we, we, we won't fight it or push it back or deny it and just doing it of course is an extraordinary effective it's um it's it's the way only by practicing receptivity ourselves can we realize that receptivity and vulnerability is really what we want all along however mm -hmm. hard it is mm -hmm. And we want it for others and we want to be merciful towards them too rather than harsh mm -hmm. and unyielding towards them or suspicious of them or feeling we need to protect ourselves against them and uh, mercy you know it's um, it can't really be said of us all in our average congregations that people have really wholeheartedly admit their need of mercy huh just you know, admit they, the need we, of mercy and we're not really um, we sort of go we use words like mercy in church but we haven't always we haven't always been coached mm -hmm. into ways of admitting it and really recognizing that we're in need of mercy 
and we need to practice mercy towards ourselves. And we can only do that by letting God be merciful to us in a, in a way that touches us and speaks to us as we are. But the parishes where people are coached in self-examination so that they could on a Saturday afternoon, sit with their cup of coffee on the, you know, on the balcony and think, now, what, will, what sins will I be bringing to the Eucharist tomorrow? Mm -hmm. what, what will I seek mercy for in the absolution? Sure. Um, as, you're, yeah, as you're describing this um, experience of people taking time to reflect on what am I bringing to the Eucharist tomorrow. Yeah. Um, it, it's a very, very different way, but um, I spent some time in a Mennonite community and yeah. certainly, you know, communion is a very different, functions in a very different way there. But um, something that struck me about this community was that they would celebrate, they would have communion um, once a month and the week before communion, like the Sunday before, um, they would uh, go, there would be like a prompting. There was like an invitation to make right anything yes. that you needed to make right before you come to communion. Yes. And, and before communion, the, um, the, that's the only time that they pass the peace is before communion. And um, it wasn't just a sort of like, hi, how are you? Great. Right. You know, like, you know, the things that I had experienced in, in my life. Um, but, but it was this very sober, you shake everybody's hand, you look everybody in the eye, yeah. um, and, and you really mean that I hold nothing against you. Yes. This would be a very testing discipline in our, in our setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a reminder, other Reformation churches took very, this very seriously. And of course, if you look at the original prayer book, um, of our Anglican churches, they also had an exhortation where a priest would uh, call to, you know, call people to repentance and reconciliation. And indeed, it's in this exhortation that the original Anglican prayer book set out the possibility that if you had difficulties with your conscience, then was the time to come and seek out a priest mm. to unburden yourself to receive absolution personally. So I think we have our work cut out again, you know, to go deeper into these things. And I think it's partly because in our sort of rather sunny side of the street, liberal Episcopalian <laughs> manner, we have developed a collective aversion to talking about sin, mercy, compunction, these things. Mm because that was regarded as part of the negativity and guilt-laden spirituality of the churches we escaped from in order to become Episcopalian. You know, there's <laughs> an allergy to guilt and a kind of a allergic avoidance of straying from the sunny side of the street. So I think now is the time, I think, to say, well, look, that was all fine and good. But now we actually have to um, grow up time and develop mm. a, a collective spirituality 
where people cross over from the sunny side to the shadow side of the street on a very regular basis um, um, and really integrate a, a joyful spirituality and affirmative spirituality, life affirming, but also be a, a culture where we are able to look our hearts in the face. Mm -hmm. um, there's a Dorothy L. Sayers novel, Gordy Night, has an incoherent curate praying, Lord, show us how to look our hearts in the face, however difficult that may be. <laughs> and in some sense, it's a very truthful prayer that um, people need coaching and help to do that so that we, we grow up into being people who are who are not ashamed to need God's mercy mm. over and over again and uh, know, know the different ways we have of being receptive to that. That's a really helpful uh, analogy that there's the sunny side of the street where perhaps we, I mean, ignorance is bliss, you know, perhaps we don't look into the mirror very deeply. Perhaps we, we don't have a language to talk about sin and our need of mercy in some way and an alternative to um you know the sort of sunny side of the street is um entering into actual joy entering into a fullness in which um we open up the gates and actually experience mercy and love and forgiveness and um that there is a deep a deeper joy than just ignorance that will make us um, will make us grow up, uh, will make us closer to receiving what God wants, what God keeps trying to give us. Right. You know, and these insights are very, very ancient, very, very classic. There's a phrase that comes from the desert fathers and mothers, the, the pioneers of Christian spirituality in the third, fourth century. Uh, a phrase grew up, caro poion penthos, the grief that makes joyful. Mm -hmm. And this paradox actually touches on a very, very serious dimension of Christian life, which is, although it's painful to look at our own um, sinfulness and our own shadow, um, there's no access to joy unless we can embrace that side of ourselves with mercy and tenderness. Only by a sense of being able to put our, our own arms around our broken selves mm. by God and then feel God's arms around our arms, only then do we have any chance of uh, stepping into that a place of compassion for others. Mm -hmm. So it's not this, um, I have to really beat myself up about yeah. everything that I've done wrong yeah. and then God will love me and then I'll be okay. It's, mm -hmm. it's like, I need to be able to be honest about where I've failed, where I've struggled to use my gifts in the way that God would have me use them. Um, and I can admit that because I know and trust that 
um, there is a God who sees and knows me. Right. Um, and I can see and know myself without um, shame or self-hatred um, or, or whatever else gets in the way. Um, it's not just that like I'm, uh, I'm bad or something and then God is good and then I just have to keep doing it. It's like I have to be able to, God gives me the way the strength, I don't know if it's strength or courage to embrace myself um, wholeheartedly and with this tender mercy yeah. on myself exactly. Um, exactly. as as God is doing for me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well done. Well said. Yeah. Um, well, this has been really helpful for me, certainly um, a lot more joyful of a conversation than I even anticipated. Um, would would come up and so I really appreciate your time um, and all you've been able to share um, about this uh, ability to confess, um, to look into our shadow side, to open up to God um, and to be willing to um, experience the grief that makes joyful in some way. Thank you, Savannah. Yeah, thank you very much. Good, good. Blessings.